first, thank you all for coming, and second, apologies for my little nasally sound. I unfortunately have been fighting a cold, so I'll do my best to speak up, um, and hopefully you could all hear me. So I want to um, sort of begin by juxtaposing two different teen statements uh, that I heard reverberating throughout the country in 2005 and 2006. The first is sort of best um, given by Kathy Sierra's daughter, Skylar. Uh, if you're not on MySpace, you don't exist. Um, this is sort of suggests that participation in culture is dependent on techno participation, that to be a youth, you have to be technologically um, engaged. The other is a slightly different tone. Um, it sort of suggests that uh, technology becomes a last use um, uh, because of boredom, because of being controlled, because of lack of access. Um, I sort of want to put a moment to say that I'm talking about MySpace. It now applies to a lot more than MySpace, namely Facebook and YouTube. But these are the kinds of statements that you tend to hear throughout this country. And at the base of them is sort of a desperate desire to be social, to hang out, to be validated, to be part of a group, to be part of a community. Um, the quotes also suggest that uh, social network sites are sort of about sociality at a fundamental level, not necessarily networking, but a way of being with friends, people you already know. And so when I embarked on this project, I was trying to sort of work out exactly what these sites were doing, the role that they played in a lot of teen sociality, um, and why it is that people use them. And since I'm in an academic setting, I feel the need to do a little bit of a methodological uh, background. Um, and I sort of want to say that I, you know, my background originally, long ago, was all sorts of computer science. And then I um, went, came to MIT and I started actually studying people, which sort of seems like an odd um, place. And I think that it has to do with my tendency to rebel in any environment that I'm in. Um, but when I quit MIT, I started actually paying attention to what was going on on the web and started documenting it. And Basically, around February 2003, I became deeply involved with studying what was happening with one of the first really large next wave social network sites, Friendster. I followed the launch and I followed the early adoption of uh, numerous social network sites, Tribe, LinkedIn, Flickr, MySpace, Facebook, Twitter, Dodgeball, Orkut. All of these I was on within a week of their launch. I followed what was going on, why they were launched, and how they were adopted in different populations. I followed a ton of different sites um, outside of that just to make sense of what was going on. Um, and again, I, I was doing ethnographic work. I was just paying attention to it. I was not in school, and I theoretically was not doing research. But I found myself spending 10 hours a day doing so. In late 2004, I decided to formalize uh, my research uh, and in order to do uh, a dissertation, that academic thing. Um, and I decided that I was going to move away from studying the social network sites, pay no attention to them, and follow what youth were doing. Uh, that was just in time for them to flock to MySpace. And so as a result, I ended up following MySpace. Now, ethnography is a hard thing to describe for a lot of people, especially in a bounded form. Um, but at a, f a core, ethnography is about writing culture. Uh, and to practice um, an ethnographic method means living, breathing a particular culture. Um, and it's hard to sort of talk about what is that culture when you're talking about technology. Because usually you think about it in terms of a bounded place, right? You study the population living in Bali and a community within Bali. Um, so you know, my goal was actually to do an ethnographic study of youth, American youth in particular. Um, and people thought I was insane. Because what I've done is actually traversed this country um, over and over again trying to sort of suss out what people were doing and at the same time look at all their practices online. So I've moved between the online and the offline world. Um, for those who have uh, a tendency towards numbers, I've analyzed over 10,000 MySpace profiles, clocked 2,000 hours of observing on what happens on MySpace, formally interviewed, aka IRB approved, 90 teens in eight states um, with a variety of different backgrounds and demographics. 
But frankly, that's just the tip of what I've ended up doing. Um, since, since 2004, I've been doing all sorts of things to hang out and really be present in youth culture. I spend time at fast food joints um, and malls, my favorite places in the world. Um, I ride buses when school lets out because it's amazing what you can hear in cities um, in places like that. I talk to parents, teachers, marketers, politicians, pastors, technology creators. Basically, I read, I observe, and I document. The difficulty with studying um, youth culture is that it's always a moving target. One, they're getting older. They're no longer in high school in a, in a very quick move. Uh, most of what I've been looking at is primarily high school, although I have followed some of it into college. Um, and, you know, I'm here talking about MySpace, and obviously the frame of this is MySpace, but I, it's important to note that in the last six to nine months, the entire um, culture has shifted. And I'm not going to get into um, all of the factors to point out that there's an exodus going on. Um, things are moving from MySpace to Facebook. You've heard the press cover this. Um, but it actually has a lot more to do with class than anything else. And I'm happy to talk about that in the Q&A um, if we get to it. But I want to sort of focus first on what's going on with MySpace because so much of my data is from those days. So first off, Pew did some great work um, trying to track who was using it. And these numbers at this point are particularly old. In December of 2005, um, Pew found that 55% of American teenagers aged 12 to 17 would admit having a social network site profile in front of their parents. And I want to put that as a clarifier. You hear this data all around, but it's in front of their parents. So we know that these numbers are somewhat low. It's also important to note that things have actually changed because 2006 saw a rise for even um, those who were not participating at first. And my experience has been that 70 to 80% of teens have a profile, but they may not do anything with their um, site other than private messaging, aka glorified email. Um, so what I've seen is that the percentage of really active are around 50%. Um, but there's a lot more going on in terms of how people use it. I should note that I also um, spend a lot of time interviewing uh, those who are not using it. So I interview broadly, not just, the, um, not just focus on the users. So let's actually switch to the topic at hand. I want to talk about networked publics. And this term is used by various scholars, folks like Mimi Ito over at um, USC, um, to talk about different numbers of things. And I, I have a hard time locating this term in general, because in many ways, locating the word public is very, very difficult. Um, public means many things. Um, in my case, I want to talk about it meaning two different things. The first is sort of a collection of a space, a particular location where um, things happen that are in public. Um, and the second is, in many ways, the, um, the the group of people who actually share a sort of interest or value. Um, you know, what Livingstone talks about is, you know, sort of a community by audience. Um, and this is sort of like another notion of a public. Um, the concept of public, you know, it has been thrown out. I'm sure those of you in the room have heard of Habermas's ideas of it about a civic space. It sometimes is and sometimes is not. It also can become a very much of a cultural space. And I very much believe in Hannah Arendt's framing of it where she talks about how it's critical to engage in public to make things real that culture basically takes place in the public. There's not one public, there are multiple publics, and this is where you get into you know, ideas around Warner. They connect pe people in different ways. So when I think about networked publics, I think about you know, using all of these complicated ways in which publics can be framed, and think about what it means as you connect through mediating technologies. So the mediating technologies create a public, and they allow publics to organize and, and exist within it. But in the same sense, these publics in many ways are imagined, as in Benedict Anderson imagined communities. They're imagined by the collective to have some sort of property. The technology has allowed for private conversations in ways over the years, but there's the publics, um, networked publics have existed for, for at this point, 
almost 30 years, right? We think back to Usenet in 1979, and it was a public space. It was a place where people could gather around particular topics of interest, and that was the organizing frame of it, and that was the organizing frame of much of early networked spaces. Think about um, what happened to mailing lists as things moved off from um, Usenet. Again, topic organization. Anybody interested in motorcycles can join the, you know, the mailing list on motorcycles or wrecked out motorcycles. And then the boom happened. And people rushed online. They were, you know, they were sold the story of e-commerce, but they mostly went on to participate and talk to their friends to use email. Um, and then a whole new wave of technologies came about um, to allow for search and information access, and in many ways, the next level of community organizing. This is what's often talked about as Web 2.0. Um, and I think that Web 2.0 is really, really interesting, not for all of just the e-commerce reasons, but the way that it changed the rules about organizing sociality. What happened was instead of actually being organized simply based on topics, people became organized based on their friends. And this was the rise of what you really hear talked about as, you know, um, uh, what, you know, Castells and Wellman talk about as sort of, you know, um, networked communities in different ways. Um, the Web 2.0 changed the rules around this. And so people went from being private, many of those who didn't think about being public, and went to a friends-only organizing structure. They saw the world in terms of their friends. You will run into people on MySpace who think it's a place for religious communities because all they see on MySpace is religious communities. People log in and they join with their friends. So given this sort of trajectory of it, let's sort of back to Friendster. Friendster um, launched in uh, the fall of 2002. Most people didn't hear about it until 2003. Um, and it hit three groups really early on, groups that actually tend to populate a lot of the social spaces. Self-defined geeks, freaks, and queers. Um, within Friendster, that meant geeks, the bloggers. Um, they joined in all sorts of ways all over the world. The freaks, people who attend the Burning Man Festival, which is an arts festival in Nevada every fall, um, who joined it as a way of, uh, you know, connecting around the people that they were part of a camp with. And queers, mostly gay men, mostly living in New York. Um, the early adoption was pretty impressive because they, none of them saw it as a place to necessarily date. The gay men were using it as a place to find hookups, but by and large what the um, Burning Man attendees were doing is a place to fool around with their friends. It is important to note that in 2003 in San Francisco, people did not have jobs in the 30-something crowd. They had a lot of spare time, and they used a lot of that spare time on Friendster throughout that period. It didn't hit any press until June of 2003, by which point it already had 3, 300,000 users, um, pretty active. And a whole sort of culture emerged where people talked about what it meant to you know, be a part of Friendster. And you'd hear this, this language, well, she's not my friend, but she's my Friendster. Um, and it became part of the cultural norms as like people were starting to build out these networks. They were making sense of these networks. There were you know, uh, sites that existed before that, but by and large, mainstream users weren't, weren't using them. So Friendster became a place for relatively mainstream 20, 30-somethings to gather and find their friends from college, find their friends from high school, uh, which also made some of the more marginalized populations run away quickly. Friendster was designed as a dating site. It wanted everybody to act as though they were dating. They were to create very formal profiles. They were not to actually goof around. They were certainly not to put up fake images or you know, collect millions of friends. And so Friendster went about um, trying to make people behave by killing off their accounts. 
they decided that if they could play a little bit of whack-a-mole, that they could actually make everybody follow their rules. This had some ramifications for what happened within the space, uh, because not all the users wanted to play by their rules. They liked it as a fun play space. They liked it as an exploratory space. And fakesters were emerging, fakesters being fake profiles that were created, emerged in many ways for a purpose. The first work, for example, Harvard University had a fakester so that all the alumni could find one another. This predated the ability to say you were from Harvard. Um, people also did it as a way of sort of marking, marking turf, marking their communities. It became an identity space. Um, so Burning Man had a, a profile. And because at the beginning of Friendster, the most, um, the, the, the sort of coolest people by most number of friends were listed on the front page, um, people took these fake characters and used them to sort of rally and collect hundreds and hundreds of friends. Um, when Friendster started killing them off, they killed off a lot of, you know, the sort of goofy things, the people who were just playing, many of whom just were frustrated and bored, um, and they also killed off some very useful populations. Around this time, uh, a little-known, um, little-paid-attention-to site launched in Santa Monica called MySpace. It was meant to be a complete rip-off of Friendster. They knew it as such. Um, they thought that they could figure out how to do it better. Um, they thought that, they, that Friendster was messing up, and in many ways they were. So one of the first populations that they reached out to, mind you, they reached out to everybody at first who was kicked off of Friendster. But one of the first populations they reached out to were indie rock musicians. This is a really funny story because by um, late summer of 2003 in San Francisco, indie rock musicians were using Friendster as a way of marking who their fans were and uh, encouraging their fans to come to gigs and know about what was going on. They were kicked off with the, with the killing of the fakesters, um, and MySpace instead went, hmm, maybe we can actually support this. What would it mean to support this? And so they actually reached out to the indie rockers and said, hey, we see you started to join the site just to test it out. How can we help you? And the indie rock musicians were like, what? You want to help us? And they're like, yeah, what can we give you? And so some of the features that you see today on MySpace were designed for that. For example, the URL, http www.myspace.com slash your unique URL, was so that bands would be able to give out um, particular URLs to go to their pages. Well, it wasn't just bands that were using it in the music industry. One of the first um, big groups who realized that this had potential were Los Angeles-based promoters, music promoters. And so if you wanted to get into the Viper Room or the VIP clubs throughout, um, uh, throughout Los Angeles, you needed to be on MySpace. You were on MySpace, you were given a list, and you got VIP passes. It was a way they tracked people. The promoters started using it, and then the band started using it as a way to sell back to the venues, saying, hey, we want to, we want to um, you know, come play a show here, and look, we've got this many friends. We're easily going to be able to sell out your show. Well, bands have fans, and fans are not always um, exactly old. Uh, the first group of fans that sort of jumped on were the 21-plus crowd, those who could get into the clubs in Los Angeles. But quickly, the college kids thought it would be really cool because they, you know, they followed what was happening in the club scenes. They followed what was happening, you know, um, for concerts. So they sort of worked their way down. It quickly started to go below that. The thing to know about something like Seventeen magazine is that it's 13-year-olds that read it. You always see about four years ahead in terms of who's actually paying attention to the culture. So when you, something starts to actually take off um, at that 21 crowd, it works its way into college and it works its way down. Um, and people pay attention to it. MySpace, rather than blocking the teenagers, actually changed their policy with each round. They first dropped it to 16. Then they dropped it to 14. They can't afford to drop it below that, as we all know. So they didn't. 
Um, but it didn't take long for teenagers to sort of jump on board and start participating. The first round of teenagers who came to MySpace were by and large musically inclined. They were sort of the arts um, scene within their high schools. But it didn't take long for them to invite their friends as well. And their friends, you know, may not actually be interested in music, but they realized that this site was useful for all sorts of other things. Uh, by and large, they were, had been using IM, they had been using Zanga coming into this period. They found expressing themselves to be a really interesting space. Um, they liked to be able to see who their friends were. They liked to be able to collect their friends. Um, it became a game, and MySpace gave them the flexibility to do whatever they want. It didn't take long for a teenager to realize that MySpace um, was not actually that technologically savvy, um, and they figured out that they could put a bold tag into the forms. Um, once they figured out the bold tag worked, they figured the italics tag worked, they figured other HTML worked, CSS worked, JavaScript worked, tons of code worked, and MySpace didn't scrape it out. Interestingly, MySpace recognized that this was happening within 24 hours of the first emergence of this code appearing in the forms on MySpace, but they didn't stop it. They thought it would be interesting to see where it went. Um, and this allowed for young people in particular to create an entire culture of copy-paste literacy, uh, to use Dan Perkle's term, a community where they could copy and paste text from, uh, copy and paste code throughout the web, things that people would give them, put them into the forums on MySpace, and voila, they'd have a flashy, gaudy, atrocious thing that they found home. Um, so within, the, within that culture, all sorts of chaos emerged because nobody ever knew what they were copying and pasting. Um, this is where you see the rise of phishing schemes within MySpace, the rise of all sorts of disasters for privacy and, um, and hackability. But you know, this is not actually the core of what makes a social network site a social network site. Um, social network sites actually have uh, a couple of key components to them that's true across all the board. And you'll notice that I'm using the word social network site, differentiated from social network king site, which is what you will usually hear in the press. And the reason why, of course, is that this is not actually about social network king. People are not going and they're not out interested in meeting uh, all sorts of new people. By and large, what makes these sites unique is the fact that it becomes a place where you can actually write into being your social network, explore that. And that's where there are three properties that make up the majority of social network sites. The first is a profile. Profiles come from um, the dating form. How old are you? Where do you live? You know, age, sex, location. Who are you interested in meeting? What can we know about you? Um, that doesn't mean that anybody is remotely truthful. And just like um, with dating sites, people are, you know, sort of fudge the edges. I can guarantee you this girl is not 95 years old from Christmas Island. Um, uh, considering all of her friends are from New Jersey. Um, but, you know, they, there's all sorts of reasons why people will do that. The next two feet, you know, profiles, of course, existed in dating sites, existed in other systems before that. In many ways, all the sorts of networking systems. But a social network site also has two things that build off of that public profile. The first is friends, which is a list of all of the people that you care about, that you're interested in. Um, and friends, you know, in a, in a context of a social network site does not mean friends in a, in a uh, sort of uh, colloquial term. It's not the same as all the people that you're really close with or you trust. But there are all sorts of reasons why people will add friends. They add friends because, you know, they kind of know them and it's rude to say no. They add friends because they look cool. They add friends because they want to get to know that person. They add friends because they went to the same high school. They add friends because it's a band. They add friends because why not? Um, and so you start to have these large networks that are not necessarily of the close friends, but are people that are in many ways um, that community. And I'll come back to that in a little bit. 
The third main feature is this ability to write public comments. Um, this is the opportunity to say, you know, on somebody's profile something very publicly to them. It was created as testimonials within Friendster, which was the idea of like, I could sit there and be like, Ethan is very cool. You should meet him. He's nice. Um, which, you know, is all sorts of atrociousness. It didn't take long within Friendster for people to start to use this as a communicative space. Uh, my favorite, of course, were to watch the fakesters play around with it. Uh, I fell in love with watching these, these two love stories between table salt and pepper, where they would write these testimonials back and forth about how they belonged on certain foods together and they were torn apart by things. And, and it was just fun to watch. What happened when young people started actually using this site is that they used it for much more sort of just social posturing. Yo, what's up? Hey, dude, how's it going? Right, back and forth and back and forth all day long. Um, and it's a, it's a sort of interesting little factoid at this point. Over 66% of um, Facebook uh, uh, comments between people are on the wall, not on private messages. By and large, um, profiles have a whole self-expression component to them, right? Who am I? It, it looks a lot like a locker room. The thing to notice, I have this picture of a locker. locker lockers at this point in most schools are not allowed to be decorated. It's considered a fire hazard, uh, which breaks my heart. But you can actually um, go and still decorate your digital uh, expression. It kind of looks like a bedroom wall. It has all of the sort of things that would make parents and adults run away. It screams at you. It sings songs. It plays three things at once. It flashes. The blink tag is back. Um, this makes it an amazing youth space um, sort of for self-expression. They don't care if it's red on green. Um, and it also is a really good way to keep the adults away. Um, this is one of the things that I think is at risk at Facebook now that the adults are flooding in. Um, but in many ways, what really makes these sites sort of unique and important is the way that they are publics. They are publics in some senses, like the mall, like the park. They are places where people can gather and communicate, share thoughts, share ideas. But they are also unlike any public that we are used to or any public you grew up with. And in particular, there are four properties that I like to sort of flush out um, of how these, property, uh, how these networked publics are fundamentally different than the publics you and I grew up with. First, things are persistent. That means that they stick around. This is really great for asynchronous conversation. It's really problematic when 10 years from now your boss gets to read all of the things you wrote as you were going through your angsty stage. Um, searchability. My mother would have dreamed of the ability to scream grep into the ether and figure out where I'd run off to. She couldn't. I am very, very thankful. Um, today's teens, when they start, are, start of a, um, are part of a network public, are become very searchable, not just by their parents, but by other audiences as well, uh, which is where we go back to being 95 and from Christmas Island. Replicability. You can copy and paste anything from one space to another, and how do you know the original from the copy? Right? This is all Negroponte's digital bits conversation coming to life. Um, this is great for the ability to sort of, um, you know, have a conversation and, and bring in other audiences, but what if that other audience is not ex actually expecting it? It's important to note that this is one of the best ways to bully, right? You can co have a conversation on IM, you can copy and paste it into a blog, everybody can see it, and they can't even tell if you've modified it slightly, because it's really hard to tell the original. Finally, the fourth is invisible audiences. I have this sense from who's in the room of, you know, generally, you know, who I'm talking to. The, you know, the context of Berkman tells me what kind of tone to pick up. Um, but at the same time, there's a camera over there, and I don't actually know who all that audience is. This is what it means to be a part of a mediated space. You don't necessarily have a sense of your audience. You don't know if they're nodding along. You don't know if they're looking at cookies instead of you. You don't have a sense of what's going on. Um, and so the question is, how do you cope with it? What I think is really interesting is the way that, given these properties, young people have found ways to make sense of it. So the question, of course, is why do you care to have all of these things? And it has to do with context. 
context allows us to determine how, what is the social appropriate way to interact, right? We if you think about all of Goffman's ideas about front stage and self-presentation, they require context. They require knowing what it is, how it is that you're supposed to interact based on what is appropriate. Uh, to that to particular space. Of course, that doesn't mean you follow those rules offline, right? And this is why I love buses, because you know people know they're supposed to be quiet, and they know they're supposed to sit in the seats, not stand in the seats, um, and they know all of these things. This is what it meant to be socialized into that world. But at the same time, not many people actually follow those rules. So there's this question about what, what is the expectation and what are the rules that are going to be followed when given the opportunity. But at the same time, you all, you know, as sort of well-trained um, Harvard folk, know that you're supposed to sit at this table and pretend like you're paying attention to me, you know. Um, whereas I would welcome any of you to get up and dance on the table. You might do this with your friends. You might even do this with your colleagues when you're out um, at a bar. I have yet to actually give a talk where people are willing to do it, although I'm still on the dare game. Um, because it's not that it's not that the people are actually the full rule. It's about what the whole social norms are around the people, around the space, around the expectation of um, what your role is in that space, and around what the you know context for gathering is. Um, the internet, in many ways, had provided that information for a long time through you know the the labeling of of topic through that organization that we talked about with Usenet. Right? This is uh, an old bulletin of uh, Rec Pets Cats. People knew that this was a space to talk about cats, and they were socialized into the Cats Forum about what was expected based on um, you know, sort of lists of the topics that they could see, how people talked about it. Um, and I, <laughs> yeah. It didn't take long for people to not follow the rules. Um, an example I like to give is uh, something called alt.tasteless. I don't know how many of you are around for alt.tasteless. Um, Alt.tasteless was another uh, Usenet group that liked to invade Usenet groups and bring with them a slightly twisted version of what the social rules were for that particular place. So they came into um, Rec Pets Cats and they started writing detailed recipes of how you could cook your cat um, and different ways to like you know shave your cat so you could sort of rip off their hide in a more convenient way. <laughs> All sorts of things that <clears throat> did not exactly make the cat lovers happy and the cat lovers fled. Um, because what happened was that even though the, you know, the norms got set up in many ways by the definition of the group, not everybody wanted to play by those rules. And w the question was how did you manage when um, those rules started to crumble? The early internet had um, sort of a like minds effect. By the time the boom was over, there's no like minds. It's everybody, some of whom you will agree with and some of whom you won't. Now, context, figuring out context is not just about tech, you know, the origin of, of the internet and the, the problems that emerged on, say, Usenet. But in many ways, it's something that's been in existence for all sorts of mediating technologies for a long time. This is a um, story from Joshua Meyerowitz's No Sense of Place, where he talks about um, Stokely Carmichael going and actually giving talks to different audiences based on what the expectation of how that audience was to perceive him was. He would talk to white politicos using very proper, posh, educated ways of speaking in DC. And then he would go and talk before Southern black congregations using a much more rolling pastoral style that was much more accepted at the time, but also seen as very anti-white. In 1968, he was forced to go on television and radio, and he had to make a decision. There was no neutral voice. There was no way to be heard by both audiences at the same time. He made a decision, and the voice he chose alienated white society. And to this day, we see black power as anti-white. Um, young people are faced with the same dilemma. How do they speak simultaneously to you know, um, adult audiences, to, you know, to their peers? 
there are many ways trying to make sense of um, you know the kinds of audiences that they have, but these are the audiences that only celebrities, politicians, journalists, those kinds of folks have learned to negotiate it. This generation is growing up dealing with celebrity style publics, dealing with the idea that you know you can be famous amongst fifteen, uh, but you don't even necessarily know who those fifteen are. That means that you know they look to people like Paris Hilton as a better example of how to live in public life than their parents in many ways, uh, because they're told that you know it's meant it's better to be public and be noticed and be seen than it is to be private and become invisible. I sort of want to take another little tangent and sort of back us up for a moment um, to the Depression era in the United States, when moral reformers teamed up um, with uh, labor unions um, to force uh, high school or force a compulsory high school um, regime. Prior to that point, 14-year-olds um, who were, are not of the wealthiest class would go into um, working environments. They would be socialized by um, adults uh, into work life at factories, um, farm environments, or sort of little trades. Um, that kind of hazing um, got you know, sort of shifted around when we have an entirely different environment, because this is the rise of age segregation. Prior to this era, it was not, you did not have strong age segregation. Sure, you knew people that were your age, but it was not considered freaky to know people that were older than two years older than you, as it is today. Um, the American high school, um, as we see it, the 1950s image with the sports and the activities and all of that, was solely to keep young people off the streets and away from the labor organizers. Um, it was a way of keeping them out of the workforce because there were not enough jobs for the older folks. Um, we can talk about this as positive, but there are a lot of costs to this kind of dynamic. Um, that age segregation has meant that, you know, this, the rise of bullying, which actually started in the 1950s, because you started to see, instead of having hazing coming down, where the older people always sort of tormented the younger people, and they were meaningfully young adults, you now actually have this sort of inward-looking attempt to, to sort of raise your generation. The term teenager was created in 1941 as a... Um, term for marketers to depict a particular um, demographic that they could go after. Um, and this is, again, marking of this sort of age group. It also meant a rapid changing of generations, a much faster change, change when you only know people within two years. The whole culture changed quickly. Um, today we're living with a lot of the um, damage of, in many ways, that. And we're also, you know, magnified this relationship where adults don't understand young people and young people don't know any adults. Um, you know, I, we can blame a lot of different things over the last 75 years. Um, but the, some of the things I would like to point to, you know, even just what the Catholic Church debacle did for, you know, destroying the relationship young people had to religious figures. Uh, because that was one, the remaining vestibule that I had seen um, for many years. Um, Teenagers today, in many ways, are sort of kept out of all sorts of public life. They are locked inside for various reasons. One is sort of basic structural. If they don't have um, cars, they can't afford gas money, they can't afford the car, they're not going to be able to get out in most parts of the United States. Boston is slightly different. You actually have public transit. Most of the United States does not. Um, even when there is public transit, parents are often afraid of it. They're afraid to let their kids run out in the streets. Um, there's some great new research emerging showing how young people are not actually um, having any access. Um, I run into parents all the time who can't remember the last time that they, um, the kids were out of their viewpoint or out of their house. Um, this is no longer a community, in most communities in the U.S., there are no longer spaces where people just sort of run around and run free and come back, come back before dinner. Um, Children's Society in Britain is actually talking about how we're terrified to let our kids out of the house. They're the they're sort of key research player in this. Um, the United States, I've been seeing it. I don't know of any good research that has tracked the details of it. Um, 
But it's, it's a sort of an effect. The other big effect that's at play, especially for middle upper classes, they're highly structured. It starts at play dates. It continues on until um, you know, going from activity to activity in the hopes of getting into a school like this. Um, they are stressed. I am, I am amazed at the amount of kids that I've run into with ulcers and other stress-related disorders due to that in the middle upper class environment. I remember when I went to, I, went, I also spent time in high schools and I was in a high school on the day that early admissions app, uh, our early admissions announcements were made and I was wondering why a third of the kids hadn't showed up and the principal was like, they're not going to show up if they didn't get in. Right? This is what upper class environments look like today. So what you see is that young people are turning to these network publics as a way of sort of working out and working through the publics that they don't have access to. They're using it as an alternative public. Um, and they're finding ways to sort of innovate and create interstitial um, communities and spaces where they can connect to their friends. What Mitsu Matsuda in, in Japan has tracked is the always-on intimate uh, always on intimate communities um, has arisen here in the United States through the social network sites. The unstructured time is in these very small little bits, the five and ten minutes that you can log in to see what your friends have written to you, that you can update the wall. So this one I want to sort of turn back to the social network sites and see what it is that they're doing to cope with it. Um, the technology affordances, the things that we talked about, those properties, mean that you have to find out new ways to socialize within it. Um, so for example, why do people write comments instead of private messages? I think this is a really interesting question as I started to look. By and large, the default is public. People assume, well, you'll write a comment unless you really have to talk to them privately. Right? That's a radical shift from most of what we've actually experienced. It's better to be visible. It is better to be seen on the street. It's better to get cred for those social interactions, even if it means you have to hear the exact words, than it is to appear invisible. You need that reciprocity. You write on somebody's co comment on somebody's page, they will write back. Um, there's also sort of a way of, of controlling the situation, that, you know, using, this, using the comments. My favorite has to do with breakups. Um, I was astonished when I started to see that teenagers were breaking up with each other on their, you know, on their MySpaces and now on their Facebooks. And I was like, why are they doing this? And I realized it's a way um, for young people to sort of sit there, sit there and they control the conversation. Rather than an IM conversation, because mind you, young people are dating, but by and large the way that they see each other is in school and they're sort of sneaking a lot around all sorts of places. They don't break up in person. Um, they break up in a mediated way, whether it is via phone or IM um, or even via MySpace. And so the assumption is that if that breakup is going to happen in a mediated environment, it'd be better to do it in the witness of other people. If you write the message, everybody can see what you said, not what she said you said. The result is that you actually see this, this dynamic because then, then, of course, the technology acquires other things. The person comes in, they realize that this, this post was written, they were broken up. All their friends saw it, and one of them probably called them, before they got to see it. To rid themselves of this on MySpace, and this is different with Facebook, but to rid themselves of those comments on MySpace, they delete that person. Right? They delete their now ex, because that deletes and kills all of their comments. Right? All of the good, all of the bad. And it leaves these funny little gaps in the, um, the history of that conversation. It's important to note that young people will not kill, um, they will not delete friends. Um, you just keep adding and adding and adding, unless you have a nasty breakup with a um, friend or lover. Um, the, you know, the context of this friend also has to do with, you know, the, the whole idea of the friends has to do with context. It's the way you write your community into being. You write who your audience is to be. And this is where you see variability between people who have 30 and 40 friends and those who have 900. Um, those who have 30 and 40 are, are thinking of it as a much more intimate space. Those who have 900 are often thinking of it as a place for all of the people their age, their peers, the people that they care about. 
So they're negotiating these different levels or different layers of who that audience is based on how they see it. It's important to note that over two-thirds of uh, MySpace profiles are private, and of course Facebook's structured in a way to be private. But private means friends only, and friends only means the kind of audience that you imagine yourself to be a part of. And this way you can actually see the writing out of their imagined audience. And that does not include college admissions officers or law enforcement or parents. Um, the writing out of the audience also means that you have to deal with something called a top eight. Top eight has to be the most dramatic part of MySpace you can imagine. Remember, I think back to middle school when you had to think about who your best and bestest friends were. Now imagine writing it so everybody else can see. She's on your number one, not me. What's up with that? Right? Fights ensue over this. This is pure social drama. Um, and I really like this quote because I think it sort of plays it well, right? It's the new dangling carrot for getting superficial acceptance. Um, it's important to note MySpace figured out how to monetize this quite successfully. Um, there are two audiences that uh, young people don't want, and in many ways adults don't want as well, in the same space as them. First, those who hold power over them, parents, teachers, law enforcement, college admissions officers, they spend a lot of time trying to escape these kinds of audiences because they're seen as really dangerous. This is not about government looking in. This is not about marketers looking in. This is about people that hold direct power over them and they have to feel the consequences of it. And the second are, um, you know, in many ways, those that want to prey on them. And we have a lot of conversation around sexual predators, but that's not actually the realistic fear. The majority of it is spammers and scammers and marketers and anybody who wants to sort of beg them to do this, that, or the other. So you spend a lot of time trying to dodge these audiences through different means. There are three sort of means that I think are really interesting to highlight. Um, the first is sort of ways of building structural walls to try to keep those audiences out, to make searchability very difficult. You lie, you try to you know, confuse things structurally. Um, you try to put up these ways of, of getting around it, realizing that walls are really genuinely infallible, or really, really fallible uh, when you live in a world with planes, right? There's easy ways to sort of jump over these walls and not deal with the walls, but it's a way of sort of, you know, especially for the um, people trying to keep out the non-technologically um, savvy folks, it's a good way of trying to keep one level of block. The next is sort of a, an attempt to demand the way the social world should work. You know, this is my space. Mom's not wanted. Get out. Leave me alone. Uh, and the assumption is, is that if you could actually demand that this is sort of the way of, of like, demand who the audience is, that you can create this barrier. So this is where you see a really complicated relationship of what it means to be public and private. They want to be public, but public only the people like them. And in many ways, that's an assumption that we take for granted about the physical space. We, we can go into publics where it's almost all people like us, and we don't always feel comfortable in the publics where there are people not like us. But we change our behavior tremendously when we have to deal with those who hold power over us. And the third, and the more realistic, is we play ostrich. We pretend if we can't see them, they don't exist. And this is sort of the funny way of dealing with invisible audiences. You sort of want to run away. You want to find a way of making them go away because you don't want to deal directly with them. Um, this is a way of dealing with the panic, and it's actually the, the number one way that adults deal with this. Uh, adults are actually more common at dealing with ostrich um, than young people. But both are, you know, these, all three of these are ways of sort of coping with structures as they are. At a core, what's important to sort of take away from this is that public life is changing. This is a generation who um, is growing up with a different public than any of us know. We don't have the techniques right now to educate them, to tell them how to, how to work through this. By and large, the way we're approaching this um, as adults in, in the society is to tell them to leave it, to go away. Um, and they're rebelling by saying, wait, no, this has value.
This is a generation who wants, wants to socialize just as much as you did when you were growing up, but is not necessarily able to because of time and structural constraints. They're finding interstitial spaces. This, you know, the, this is not the necessarily the ideal way. And one of the things you're seeing is, is that the moments the cell phone comes in, the United States, it becomes a less important way of, of participating. And it starts to become another complementary form to the cell phone. MySpace for some teens was the only place, um, but that's actually changed over time. Um, the cell phone is interesting because it's completely locked down. And I think that this is a, you know, I think a lot of you in the room have a, a few things to say on net neutrality um, and the carriers and um, other such drama around cell phones. But because cell phones don't allow for people to really communicate with all of their peer group, the, you know, the mobile culture, they're re resorting to these network spaces. It's also sort of just a way of modeling out the infrastructure. Email is dead for these people for young people by and large. It's a way of talking to parents, authorities, college admissions officers, and you know, those, those who hold power over you. Their friends are all discussed through MySpace and other such systems. Um, and the reason is very simple. You click on a person's picture, you know it's them, and woof, an email gets sent, a message gets sent, they get notified, they get to see if you're online. All of the features around it make it an ideal asynchronous communication space. And by and large, it had less spam. Once MySpace started getting a lot of spam, it became a problem. Um, it's you know also sort of a substitute when you don't have when you have to pay ten cents per um, SMS. It's one of the reasons that outside of the you know, United States, the social network sites are much more profile centric and much less communication centric, simply because you can actually send text messages at a much more common as a much more common practice. This is the only country in the world where you have to pay to receive a text message or pay to receive a phone call. The result of which is that it's socially rude to do so. Right? I, will demand, I will send you a message and I will demand you pay 10 cents without asking your permission. What is that? Some of this is changing and I think that that change will affect um, a lot of these uh, social network sites. And I think that's why you see friends, or Facebook and uh, MySpace starting to look at it. But still, what, there's still a desire for the public, for being able to be visible, not just one-on-one, -on -one, which is what the cell phone is right now you know, sort of optimized to, but be a part of your broader peer group when you can't just hang out outside of home. I think at this point I want to turn to questions because I've sort of blew through a lot of my time. But first, thank you. So I've given tons of bits, and I'm going to say let's go for questions in different angles. So I, I, I'm going to officially open up the okay. questioning and take my, my privilege here. I, I think <laughs> I'm still about 10 minutes back, and the, uh, I'm sort of unpacking this in time. I'm bringing it down to regular speed, so if all the rest of you are catching up with me. But... Um, Dana, one of the things that, that's really interesting about your work in this space is that you're talking about ways in which people are using these tools to create a new public space. Mm -hmm. And one of the analogies that you use is a mall. And of course, what's complicated about a mall is that on the very one hand, it's public, and on the other hand, it's private in some yep. very real ways. Uh, around a law school, we all uh, really enjoy thinking about shopping malls because there's all sorts of fun court cases that declare them to be part public spaces, not part public spaces. One of the things that you've talked about a great deal is how business decisions made by some of these companies have shaped social interaction in one format or another. Is the fact that these are all commercial, for-profit, venture-backed, designed to make several billion dollars spaces, is that something that the users of these spaces that you're looking at, are they cognizant of that? Are they looking at how that's shaping their behavior? Does that come into how they make decisions about what tools they use and how right. they use them? My activist self would love to believe that young people see these commercial spaces and go, hmm, capitalism, and kind of run away from the high commercialization. That's not true. Um, 
it is accepted for it to be very, very commercial. Um, and it's actually considered, you know, I, I love these sort of quotes I get from young people that say, well, if it's got ads on it, that means it'll be free forever. Right? So the assumption is, is that if it is commercial, if it is ad-driven, then I will be able to use it free. Um, they are so used to being blasted with ads that um, they don't think twice about it. And this is, this is where, you know, maybe I should, I'm in the middle of writing an essay trying to work through what's going on with the class dynamics around Facebook and MySpace. And I think this might be a good point to sort of put some of that down. Um, at, it, MySpace was sort of the center of t the teen universe, um, particularly for the coasts, uh, for a long time. The predator panic and the way that the government framed this as a scary, scary space was appealing to some and terrifying for others. Facebook launched in the midst of this, and they launched to high schools um, about a year and a half ago. By September of last year, what happened is, is a divide started, and it really got solidified by about January of this year. The working class, marginalized kids, arts kids, music sort of freaks, subcultural participants, queer kids, they're on MySpace. Middle, upper class, good kids, um, kids that are college bound, kids that are sort of trying to do the right thing, quote unquote, um, they're on Facebook. And that divide's playing out at, at all sorts of school levels. So it's played out like the entire school is playing out that way. And it's playing out when it splits between the schools. I'm really fascinated. I spent some time in um, Iowa, where a lot of their schools, in an attempt to sort of racially mix, are divided by class. And they're divided by Facebook and MySpace because of that. Um, you saw the military, for example, um, ban MySpace, but not Facebook. They, man they banned what the soldiers are using, but not what the officers are using. Um, this is playing out in all sorts of ways because it has to do with recruitment. Recruitment is done through MySpace now. Um, and so the fact that young people have started actually talking negatively on their MySpaces about the war is, I think, a lot more of what's going on than it is about not having the actual resources. Um, so when I see a lot of things commercial, one of the th things that you start to see playing out of that is these cultural aesthetics of like what's cool and appropriate. Facebook culture is now played out as it's better to be less commercial. Facebook is extremely commercial, but the ads are like the Google ads. They're like culturally acceptable as sort of low-key, back-end, quiet, you know, sort of white backgrounds. Um, it's all supposed to be modern and sort of, I don't even have the language for sort of talking about what's going on fully, but you kind of, you sense it. You know that this sort of culture is a very, very different divide, whereas MySpace is still about bling. It's still about being as loud and crazy as possible, and it's okay for the ads to be that way too. Um, and that culture accepts that commercialization because you know that is part of what it means to gain status. There's a deep desire within um, sort of, especially the working class communities, to consume, 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 consume. They've been sold it very strongly, and it it breaks my heart when I go into some of these groups with you know kids who already have thousands of dollars in credit card debt because of the consume, consume culture. Um, the more upper class culture is consuming, but not at that sort of danger risk level, and it's allowed to be sort of more backdroppy. So rather than having Tommy Phil figure written across it. It's about knowing what's a Prada bag. Um, so those are sort of the balances you see, and you see them playing out on these sites. But they don't care that they're commercial. They don't know a world that's not commercial. They don't know a public life that's not commercial. They have no concept of it. Um, and the commercial entities in many ways are needed to support, or, you know, like, Given the lack of funding in um, a lot of these uh, communities, there's no way of supporting the kind of growth and size of something like MySpace without it being commercial, at least that I know of uh, now. I don't see anybody, you know, sort of putting a proposal on the table that would work. So, you know, it's 
it, it, the commercial entities to make money off of it pay deep attention to what's going on and they iterate based on these youth's desires. They give them the commercials that they want. You know, I've, I've sat in on um, unbelievable numbers of, of marketing um, events where they bring young people in to talk to the marketing people. And they're always asked about ads. And the young people are always like, ah, oh, just make them relevant. I'll take all the ads you want to give. Um, and that's, you've seen that across the board. And so I, just, I don't see it, I see it getting more commercial, not less. Let's take some questions. So a lot of people um, are wondering what's the next step for social network sites. So um, a lot of people say that the first kind of social network site was Yahoo GeoCities, where people um, could non-techy people could create their own web pages. And one of the, for those of you paying attention at home, um, they could go to like the links, and the links had um, their friends' pages and so on. So the next evolution was kind of like MySpace or Friendster, and then now Facebook has opened up you know, with the apps application. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of people are kind of wondering whether that's going to you know, cause a downfall of Facebook or not. But I'm just wondering in general, where do you see uh, based on your research over the years on social networking sites, what do you see this evolving into? Sure. I mean, the tech industry is obsessed with the notion of Web 3.0, um, which makes me kind of gag, which is all about um, immersion, immersion, immersion. I actually don't think that that's the answer, and I want to start by negating that frame. Um, because I think I'd, for the values that things like Second Life and World of Warcraft may have, they're not going to be mass adopted. Um, and I'm not going to go into details on that. but. I think the next level will be mobile. The question is, can we do it? Um, you know, we can sort of make the heat sink uh, go away. The question is, can we do it on a mobile level? What are the restrictions that are, exist to make it very difficult to do? And so that's why I sort of gave little tidbits on, on mobile culture. Um, the challenge is that all of the social networks go, is sort of bring back to some of the commercial or corporate elements to it. If you are dealing with venture capitalists, if you are dealing with funders, if you are dealing with Wall Street, you need to grow, 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 and infinitely grow. Um, unfortunately, it's not clear that these things are best, most successful when they grow forever. Um, you have to deal with multiple audiences that you don't want as a part of the same public. And so you start to see fragmentation. Um, and you see fragmentation based on niches. So you're seeing all sorts of fragmentation happening. And these, these fragments may have value for these particular groups, but they're not going to be mass adopted. Um, and you, some of the fragmentation is happening based on topical interests. Some is based on identity. For example, even all of the old community sites like Black Planet and Migante and Asian Avenue, they've all added um, the social network site features, so it's becoming more collective and sort of local. Um, I, I am, I'm not sure what's going to happen to the key social network sites. Um, Facebook is doing a really good job of, of now gaining the older audience, I think at the cost of the younger audience. Um, they, they caused themselves some trouble even with uh, their original base of college students when it became an in-high school thing. Because one of the big things is that when you're in college, you want to leave away your high school. You, certainly the younger siblings. You don't want them to be a part of it. Now that everybody's paying attention to this, you don't want to be visible by everybody. You don't, sh Come on, realistically, all college students drink, right? Like, you know, like you find me, find me genuinely dry campuses. Um, and at the same time, you know, the idea that one, you know, plastic red cup is the the death of your ability to get a job um, is a really difficult tension to deal with. So I think that you're just, I think it's going to be in flux for a while. And the only the only hope I have is that the mobile figures it out. The only mobile um, possibility that I that I see in the near I see two possible mobile futures that will answer it. Um, one is if um, a genuine wireless uh, phone is possible. 
so that you don't have to deal with the carrier barriers. Um, and the other is what's going on with a company called Blick, which launches later this month um, in the UK. It is a free cell phone for anybody under 24, free, free minutes, free texting, in return for ads. And the thing is, is that if they can actually get that whole group and they can get cluster effects going, then they stand a chance. Um, but you need cluster effects, and that's sort of the tricky thing. You need an entire group to be allowed to do it. If just if only 80% of your friends can participate, you won't participate. And that's another thing to know about some of the MySpace stuff. Not everybody created their own profile. A huge number of profiles were created by their friends who determined that they should be on there. Um, most security people flip out because all you know these kids know each other's passwords. They log in all the time and check their messages for each other. You know, I talk to kids who are like, yeah, I, I have a profile, but Bobby checks it and he calls me when there's an important message. Um, which also means that they, they screw with one another on their profiles, right? It's a gameplay. Um, it's not, they don't want it to be secure. So you, the, the difficulty is that it's not just the top 10% most activated, most motivated that made MySpace work. It's the fact that the whole range could participate at different levels. Even those who never logged in were participating. and a son who's 19. My daughter is an artist and she and her friends have engaged with these social networks in a different way than mm -hmm. my son has and they do actively use them as artists. Mm -hmm. um, but both, both of my children I, I think would say are part of, of networks, different social networks that, um, that are responding in critical ways to what's going on and building their own networks around that. So I caution you not to say all, um, because no, you're, these right. are, you're, you're talking in broad strokes and these generalizations have value, and yet they don't really represent all young people. And there's a growing movement of college students who are reacting to the view of college life as simply a place for debauchery. Um, you know, the, what I see amongst my daughter and her friends are these, um, they're building their own networks reacting to the commercialism of our society, and yet they're using these tools effectively to do that. And I, I appreciate the comment. I, I, there's no doubt that I'm talking in broad strokes on this, and that's sort of the difficulty of trying to lay down a whole lot of things right at once. Um, right, but, but I think that's an interesting phenomenon, phenomenon too, to observe, that there is this sort of growing awareness and... Well, and but there's not in the high school kids. The high school kids are not growing that. I wish, I wish I saw it more. I mean, I, growing, there's definitely a percentage who do participate, but not growing. Right, because I think we're talking about the same Well, why, 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 why I, let her finish her comment first, I just wanted to add one other comment, and that is that um, I do agree that there's this, um, you know, we have a situation in our society where we have incredible generational division. And as a parent, I, I guess I want to speak up to other adults and parents and say, don't let that happen. You don't have to. And that what I saw when my children were in high school was we had a lot of kids at our house who really it shocked me how they had very little interaction with adults in their lives. Mm -hmm. um, and yet they were coming and interacting with us in our household. At that time, my son was really depressed about the pressures of applying to college, and I began a conversation with him about, I said, put aside the applications, let's begin a conversation about what does it mean to be a successful adult in this world, and what do you want to get out of your life? We actually started exchanging readings. He started sharing those with his friend, friends, and we're still building now, you know, we're preparing to start a website, bringing in these friends and this other kind of conversation. So. 
other possibilities exist, and I think you know we all play a part in how we respond to the situation. Yeah, thank you. I'd like to respond to that because I have been working in that area as well on the edge. And I think when you ask about what's next, you don't look at what's in the center, you look at what's coming on the edge. And that's where all the change usually emerges from. And I've had an opportunity to, and I, I think you pointed out in some ways that these spaces really make use of the, the like Hakeem Bay calls the temporary autonomous zone. Mm -hmm. It takes away the social cues and empowers the, the teens and the youth and other people to make up a new space and a new program. Well, I found that when you convolve that back into real space, um, you don't have this bifurcation between the teens and the adults. I've, I've, I've created several experiments for different communities um, that created a temporary autonomous zone, 5,000 square foot. And typically what would happen is the teens, the adults, the homeless people, <laughs> The scientists, the engineers, are all working together. That can stand not having social cues. So there, it's. I don't think it's an age distinction. It has to do with your ability to tolerate a new frontier. I'm not saying that the the desire to have social cues is. I mean, I think people actually build social cues in, even in the conversations in those spaces. I think you'll be hard pressed to find. Uh, that completely absent. Um, the question is, what are they using to get those cues? How, is it even just the nick, the name that people are using, and how they they try to place it out? One of the best things I can say of World of Warcraft is that it's one of the few spaces that I've seen that allows for genuine age diversity to do a completed task in a meaningful way. Young people are engaged in guilds with older people all over the place, but yet those who are using um, World of Warcraft are, by and large, a very small and sort of different kind of population um, than, than what I'm talking about, which is I am talking mass mainstream uh, very intentionally for this. Um, I am very excited by some of the things that are happening on the edges, and I think that they're, they're important to, to note, but they don't always indicate what will hit mainstream youth culture, and by the time it gets modded to mainstream youth culture, it tends to lose a lot of the, the really powerful, cool things that often people notice or sort of value from it. Um, you know, I, I guess that's why I sort of found a lot of, you know, spending a lot of time in, in parts of this country where I found it very deeply disturbing how little sort of um, deep engagement, deep understanding of these spaces uh, was. Were. I mean, these, the, the thing about this generation, especially in a house where people are talking about digital natives, um, the, this generation just takes it for granted that these are their, their friends offline, online. They're, they're part of the continuous space. It's, um, it's interesting to see which kids are interested in meeting strangers and why. And I'm not talking strangers in terms of pedophiles. I'm talking strangers in terms of pen pals. Um, but th those, by and large, are even some of the more mo socially outcast within their particular schools. The majority of teens are only talking to people from their schools, their church, their, you know, sort of sports um, places and their, act their activities and their summer camps. That's their, that's their friend world. Um, and they have been definitely told that all adult strangers are bad and evil. Um, and that is playing out of it. The stranger danger is pretty intense. Um, so responding to a stranger, I mean, it's amazing because, like, I'll get kids, I will write to some kids on MySpace and it's like, my mom said that you looked okay that I could respond to you. It's like... <laughs> Here I am with like, you know, Berkeley EDU, tons of information trying to be like, look, I'm safe, and they still are afraid of me. And I'm, I don't know if any of you followed, there was um, uh, last summer a young boy was um, 
out and got lost in the middle of the woods with his Boy Scout troop. And every time a rescuer would come up to try to try to find him, um, he would hide because he was afraid. He was told that all adult strangers are bad. And the way they found him was actually by bringing young people with him. Um, and it was a really sort of scary situation. So I'm, I'm concerned that the online world is not necessarily the place where we're going to be able to introduce strangers, adult strangers, as a safe group anymore. Um, and that has to do with the, the rise of stranger danger as a strong narrative since 2000 um, for the online world. Um, and there are kids for whom that will be a, a place, and there are kids who desperately need that space. But a lot of the kids that I deal with are told that all adult strangers, bad, 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 bad. Um, and I don't know how to break that in the online world. And it's one of the reasons why researchers are having so much difficulty reaching out <laughs> to young people online. Any moments of meaningful or purposeful games? <sighs> small, you know, small, but no, not really. Not, not in large numbers. I mean, the game, the game culture that you're seeing is, you know, Club Penguin for, to a degree to which you can call that no, a I game. Mean, I mean, serious game as, as in, you know, with a purpose. Um, no. the, the one instance where I saw that emerge spontaneously was in Hawaii. Uh, it was an assembly at the end of the school year, and a very famous Hawaiian uh, or Polynesian navigator, and I know Thompson was giving an address, and it was a throwaway line at the end of his talk that, you know, kids, the adults are just not doing a good job of navigating into the future for us. Mm -hmm. If you're going to have a good future, you're going to have to do the navigating yourself. Total throwaway line. The kids took it as a total empowerment, went out, did a survey. 30,000 responses from secondary and high school kids around Hawaii. They formed basically a political movement, Kealahoku, charting Hawaii's future. That's cool. And literally became so powerful that the governor's office had to get involved to try and keep it controlled, <laughs> human services, and they were really almost out of the box in terms of the political structure. So it forced an interaction between all yeah. the levels of society and the youth saying, look, we're tired of waiting. This is what we need to do. There is some, there is some poli politics happening on these spaces. Of course, you know about them with the college students and whatnot and the engagement with national politics. Um, and this is where you see all the politicians making Facebook profiles. Um, but one of the coolest ones that I tracked for a while was uh, how MySpace, IM, and text messaging were used to mobilize uh, immigration protests last year. And that was a youth-driven protest to walk out at 8.30 a.m. Um, three days after the main adult protest. Um, and they used the sites very effectively for that kind of political mobilization when they cared about it. Of course, unfortunately, the press, the press's coverage of it, by and large, said um, kids skip school, um, bad, 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 go back to school. I mean, they actually t did a total negative slant of it. Um, and in part because California kids, this was primarily uh, 50,000 kids walked out in Los Angeles alone. And um, in Los Angeles, the, school is, uh, the schools are fined $100 for every day that a kid's absent. So that was why Villagosa was really, really determined to get them back in school. Um, so I OK. I, I just want to make sure that I know a yep. lot of people want to get questions, and we've got about 20 minutes before we release people to the four winds. So. Um, I was wondering, as you've gone across um, interviewing um, teens, have you noticed any differences between boys and girls in how they um, use these sites and what it means to them and how they express themselves and how they use their profiles? I, most of it's not surprising. Um, the girls are using it more than the boys. Um, the boys often, it's funny how many of the boys' profiles were created by their girlfriends. Um, I always find this fascinating. Um, so that they could be the first in the top eight, um, which was sort of a social requirement. Um, the, you know, the, 
the boys are, you know, they're not as, as sort of using as for as much communicativeness. I and mean, none of it is really that surprising. Um, so I haven't even sat and done a full analysis of it. Um, the, you know, they're all using it for organizing offline stuff, boys and girls. So the boys will be just as engaged as the girls for like, can we get together for, you know, let's let's host a party, let's go bowling, let's whatever the activity that they can do, they'll use the sites as well. But in terms of just a lot of the ad hoc socialization happening, it's str it's much stronger on the girls' side. And the Pew data um, confirms a lot of that. Um, the Pew data basically found that the girls are using it a lot more to maintain um, contacts, maintain relationships. It is important to note the boys are much more likely to talk to the strangers, uh, particularly any hot women that they find that they don't know, which uh, the boys are also much more likely to collect strangers um, in their in their list of friends. They like uh, there's a, a portion of them that love the um, the porn divas, uh, particularly those who seem to be about twelve. Um, so there, there's some of that um, going on, but the girls are definitely much more active by like measurements of real deep participation. Um, the, the the interesting thing, of course, is that the girls also tend to know the copy paste stuff more than the boys. The boys are more likely to know the HTML. But the girls are more likely to know where all of that goes on. The boys are also much more likely to know the proxies so that they can sneak in and look at their um, pages during school. So there's sort of these interesting balances of it. Um, but the girls often make the boys' pages. Just had a follow-up as far as the commercialization of the social networking or network sites. Um, it seems like a lot of the Web 2.0 sites take kind of a more of a pull approach to marketing than a push. And I wonder how much of, or what do you think about MySpace losing some ground to Facebook has to do with them seeming a little bit more pushy. Like, um, I remember a year or so ago when X-Men 3 was coming out, you get a special bonus feature. If you friended mm -hmm. X-Men 3's profile, you could expand your top eight or shrink it. And it seems kind of pushy, and it seems like they've been doing a little bit more of that and just making it easier um, for advertising to come where you don't want it. And I wonder what you think about the future of the... Of, of I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised if that's some of the story for the above 25s um, who didn't like the pushy and the the some of the aspects of MySpace. But by and large, the high school teens, like what I hear from them when they tell me that they've switched or when they did throughout the year, um, was that it was because Facebook was safe. Facebook was, you know sort of cool was in it was it was much more about friends and parents their parents would allow them on Facebook um, I would say that the predator panic did an unbelievable damage to, to myspace's reputation for for young people and their relationship with their parents um, Facebook seems safer somehow um, which we know through the network structure although the thing is you can get to any profile you want with a little bit of effort um, so it's I don't see it as a commercial, like from what I've seen for the young people. Um, I don't see it really as the commercial reasonings. I see it much more of simply that's where my friends are or because mom will allow me um, as a switch over. And then once that switch over started, it kind of stuck, right? Because then it just ends up being that's where my friends are, that's where my friends are. Yes. So Dana, one of the messages that I'm taking away from your talk is that social network sites are largely reifying existing social structures. Uh, which seems that everything is an ego net from a researcher's perspective. Mm -hmm. Is there value in actually looking at this from a network as a network? Uh, and is there are there cases other than the copy-paste that you can talk to us about memetic flow or something like that? Um, so you mean doing network analysis like proper? Doing network analysis or to move it back from the political space, which is outside of my area, um, ideas flowing through the network. Yeah, I mean... 
So first, network analysis is, is sort of flawed on MySpace for a variety of different reasons, although I've seen some attempts to do so, attempts to, to work through that, but I've not been happy with anything I've seen yet. Um, and a lot of it has to do with you know, why people friend and, and all sorts of dynamics around friending and the cost of some of the phishing schemes. Um, in terms of things that flow, it's sort of difficult to say and difficult to actually measure how well it's working. We can give I can give you qualitative examples, you know, for infinity about sort of you know things that have happened that have flowed through MySpace and the way people have found out about something through MySpace. You've certainly heard about it with musicians, but measuring it is really difficult to say because we know that, for example, a bulletin everybody can see it. We don't know if they read it, and it's sort of unclear who actually reads it and why they read it. Um, Things, the, probably the best measurement of it is going to be um, the apps, how people take up apps on Facebook. I think that's actually going to be more measurable. It's, uh, the, 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 the other advantage to that is that Facebook actually keeps data. MySpace doesn't. Uh, MySpace has no historical data, so you can't actually even do an analysis, um, even if you were in the company. Um, Facebook actually keeps all of their, their dates and the, and the network structure. So it's possible to actually remeasure that. Um, and you know you can certainly see it, for example, even the causes um, app, which is a very simple app. Only you're only going to find out about it really if your friends put something up on there. You can watch that grow and proliferate through those networks, and you can also watch where it hit a stagnant point. Um, so even saved our four is up to you know three hundred thousand or four hundred thousand. You can watch it go through the network, and I'm sure that would have been really interesting to measure. But in terms of in terms of MySpace, it's a lot harder because it's not clear who actually accesses what. I mean, you've seen this with, for example, they've been trying desperately to proliferate the scheme that this is a or proliferate the knowledge that these are phishing schemes, and they can't even get it top down anymore. They used to be able to do things top down. Um, because we used to always read what Tom posted in the bulletins. They don't ever more since the spam started up. Because um, Tom used to be, of course, since he's everybody's friend, um, and even when he wasn't your friend, even if you deleted him, he still got to post your bulletins. Um, that was a way of getting a lot of announcements, but that's not working anymore. Um, Over your right shoulder? Um, she had a, she's had her hand up. Ah, OK, so we're bouncing, <laughs> we're bouncing around. OK, yes, that's the part. <laughs> Um, I was curious, I'm sort of play devil's advocate, um, uh, like when you had the slide up saying if you don't have a MySpace account, you don't exist. Um, and I was wondering about, rhetorically, about students who choose for whatever reason not to have a MySpace account. Um, but I, I remember reading an article in the New York Times where uh, a lot of students got accepted into NYU and they didn't they were coming from all over the country and they realized they weren't going to know anybody and they, you know they started mm -hmm. a little like NYU 2000 whatever it's going to be 11 um, but you know like the groups like, like anybody who wants to come in and so the people came in they had the same interests and I thought oh gee you know this is really a great way yeah. for people you know you're coming in an alien situation you're going to come on campus and already you say okay we're going to meet under Washington Square you know under the arch or we're going to meet you know that's really good. But on the other hand, I think it takes away some of the danger, not, not see danger, that's the wrong word, danger. Um, the Part of the thing is when you start having self-selecting groups, that people have a tendency to stick with the people who have the same interests. And like, I like the same music, I like the same, you know, and then you may not be or more disinclined to interact with or deal with people who have like different religious uh, um, Opinions or different different interests, you know, just to expand one's knowledge base right. is is that 
Well, I mean, you know, is there so what you're talking about is, is called homophily. Um, homophily. Basically, birds of a feather stick together. Yeah. Right? Um, and measurements of homophily, you know, the, the sociologists have been doing amazing measurements of, of homophily across the board. It's not clear that um, homophily is, is, you know, what the cause and effects are um, for homophily. Mm -hmm. um, and within the social network sites, uh, yeah, it's clear that people are going to be more likely to meet people they like. But there's actually something very interesting there. Um, the Oh, I'm blanking on his name. There's um, some work done uh, in sociology as well where the more things you have in common, the more likely you'll build a friendship that will stick. So the difficulty is, of course, finding people with that many things in common. And the thing is that the technology allows that. So those relationships that are built based on all of these shared commonalities are going to stick more. The question is, are people going to interact with people that are unlike them? And I think that that actually we're losing across society as a whole. Um, I don't think that that's just the social network sites. And I think that you're seeing a training of young people not to, again, the straight, part of this larger stranger danger. Don't deal with people that aren't like you. Um, college is an interesting place because colleges um, you know, are designed for a lot of sort of social experiments. I love Harvard. It's my favorite example of, of, of watching Harvard colleges like become a social experiment for how to organize people to live together that are dis that unlike one another so they can run into each other while still being relatively homogenous. Um, at some baseline sort of intellectual levels. Uh, still, they, they, you know, it's a social experiment to get people to interact. I don't think that this takes away from it, but it builds a sort of safety net within the groups that you have when you go to college. The interesting thing of, is for me of watching who will actually build those nets pre, pre and who won't. Um, by and large, at schools like Harvard, where you know, only, only um, high schools like Phillips Exeter have a large number of people attending here, uh, by and large, you know one, maybe two other people max from your high school or from even from your county that go here, you're more likely to do this. For kids who are going to go to what, what I often sort of jokingly call grade 13, i.e. the local big college, they don't do it and they don't meet new people there either. It's a lot harder to meet new people. People tend to stick with their high school friends much longer. Okay. Um, in terms of your other question about you know, non-users, there are certainly a lot of uh, non-users about this. Some of it is too cool for this. That's sort of a common phrase you will hear. I'm too cool for it. Parents don't allow it um, is an explanation. Church doesn't allow it. Um, the, the pastors across the country have been doing an amazing job of preaching against um, this. Um, although there, it should be noted there are now Christian um, this is by and large Christian pastors preaching against it. There are now Christian sites. For example, Jerry Falwell's Battle Cry is a social network site for Christians. Um, yeah, Jerry Falwell. Um, the, you know, the, the dynamics are sort of weird of why people won't participate. But even what they're tracking with the 7% of, Pew did some work on the 7% who are online now and found that a good 75% of them don't want to be online which is a big difference than we thought So the, a lot of the remaining digital divide. Yeah. But the cool thing is, is that this is crossing race, class, you know, gender in terms of participation. So even in the most urban, poor places where there's no computers at home, they still get access one way or another. Um, and because the kids in the inner cities all know the proxies. The kids in the suburban environment don't. Um, for how to get onto MySpace, because by and large, MySpace is blocked um, at the school. So you're seeing participation pretty extensively, but how they use it is going to depend, this is where Henry Jenkins' participation divide comes into play. Yeah. How they use it is going to be very dependent on um, their kinds of access and what kinds of mobility and, and desire to meet new people are. But people are not meeting people online like we used to. Like, I grew up meeting people online. That you're not seeing from this generation at all. Okay. All right. Thank you. 
probably have time for one Wait. or two more questions before um, you do have a question. Great. Okay. All right. Um, so we, the internet gets talked about as um, a medium for people to interact outside of the constraints of the physical world. So there's another kind of journalism you'll see talking about how moms who are busy at all hours with kids will use the internet to connect and share parenting tips and whatnot. And it strikes me that some of this that you're talking about is similar. So what about um, teenagers with kids who are you know, subject to a different kind of time constraint that's going to leave them in different class circumstances than this upper class who's working to get into college? How do, is, have you noticed any class-based differences regarding teen parents with how they use this? Like, is there any kind of meaningful information sharing, or is it all sort of social saying hi? Yeah, not like, I mean, like, what I see from the parents using the internet is, by and large, the 30-plus crowd who's having children relatively late in life by some marker or using it to find mm -hmm. their friend group. You don't even see it within the 20-something parents, the same sort of large parent groups. Um, some of them will go begin it when they're in their 30s, um, when their kids are like 8, 10 or whatever, and they'll find the groups sort of for the older ground. But I don't see the, the internet being used strongly for parents in the 20s, like I do for the parents in the 30s that start in the 30s. For the, the high school <coughs> students, not at all. I don't see it as anything more than what the rest of that group is doing. They're just using it less because of time. Uh, but m my experience in talking to um, kids with kids, teens with kids, um, is that they're living at home, their primary parenting advice is their parents. They're, it's much more family structured, um, as opposed to the 30-somethings who are never living with their parents when they have kids. Or not never, but they're not living with their parents when they have kids. Um, so I don't see it as a way of connecting with other teen parents. I have not seen any examples of that. Um. Let Rob get in here. I'll, I'll ask you the so what should we do about it question. There's tons of good here. There's some kind of it's neither good nor bad. Nor bad. There's probably aspects of it that aren't so good. Uh, is there a role for government for educational institutions? What where do, we, where do we go with this? What, what do the lawyers do? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like we are some sort of on the side. I mean, <laughs> even if there aren't that many in the room. I'm, um, or not do. Uh, there's a, well, right now, there's obviously a defensive. It, I, there are 57 pieces of legislation to ban these sites in different state and federal levels for all different kinds of things. Um, they're pretty broad, pretty overarching and really broad. Um, so I would love lawyers to start doing that end of it. Uh, but, you know, in terms, in terms of general society, I think for me, my number one thing is not actually a lawyer move, it's an education move. It's about figuring out how to educate people about negotiating these kinds of publics and the complications of dealing with them. And this is not a black and white answer. You know, the, I, one of my favorite books um, that I read when I was doing anthropology is Jean Briggs' Morality Play, Inuit, Inuit Morality Play. And she talks a lot about how in Inuit culture, one of the ways you raise kids is just by asking them moral questions over and over again, right? Like, uh, from the youngest of ages. It's like, you know, kid says, you know, um, I hate my brother. And the you know, parent goes, so why don't you kill him? He goes, Hmm. Right? And they ask these sort of <laughs> these questions to sort of push at and going through sort of morality raising. And in many ways, I actually think that that's a better way for the teenage culture to be uh, questioned about this. Not why would you kill someone, but like, how would you feel if? What do you think about this? You know, and sort of asking these questions and making them work through hypotheticals because there's so much attempt to go ostriching. In terms of um, the lawyers, my number one request, it, it, 
you know, we, I think there's a lot of policy moves where we need to work on things like net neutrality. I think a lot of the bigger issues that we're, we're moving on are very much affect, will affect this group. Um, but I don't see any deep, obvious legal intervention. I mean, most of the legal interventions are like, you know, we, we scream about all of the sexual predators, and so so much legal work is going into stopping this around the sexual predators. When most of the sexual predators that are reported are in jail for two years and come back to you know repeat, most um, I think it's about the seventy percent of them are not even actually go through the process. So even when they're reported, nothing comes of it. And so I would like to see laws enforced, <laughs> not new laws put in place for this kind of thing. Um, but you know. The intervention to me is an educational one, and the other big intervention to me is what I talk about is digital street outreach. Um, Boston has amazing street outreach programs, uh, which are where young people, usually college students, go and um, deal with kids who are sort of running, running out, running away. They, you know, they go down to Roxbury. They do so, all sorts of things. Some of it is clean needles. Some of it is condoms. Some of it is just general, like, how can I help you? Um, the digital space has a lot of performance and very visible performance of kids at risk. And what I would do to have uh, a street outreach community built up online that is hanging out there, not just like there's a lot of suicide hotline numbers where it's like if you want to be proactive, you can call this number. But there's not people just sort of walking around being like, hey. And that's where, but that's where we have a difficulty because of the stranger danger. So there's these, these confusions at play. Um, but I have been able to reach out to a lot of troubled kids online because they're looking for attention. Um, so I look at these, like my interventions or the things that come to mind are not necessarily legal right now. They're much more educational, social, um, recognizing this space and helping these kids work through this space. So at this point we've had a talk that's going to touch on uh, Paris Hilton. Uh, needle exchange and your follow. Um, I think the bingo for today. Uh, those were the secret words. They they are uh, not announced before the talk, but we've now hit all of them. I think at this point we uh, can now uh, give Dana a, a rousing round of applause. Thank you. Thank you.